Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening. Is it hot and humid where you are tonight? Yeah, it's absolutely nuts. And you know what's funny about that? Pete, well, it's not funny. It's it's actually kind of sad. But there, there are people that are struggling with this all over the country struggling with the heat wave struggling with the rest of it and i there was there was a news story that there are some people that want to shut the power off as a way to draw attention to stuff and i'm like uh, i want more power i need air conditioning man i'm i'm a north dakota boy i expect it to be 32 degrees shut the power off to draw attention to things yeah mm. Didn't mm, make interesting. Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense to me either. Hey, so we have a an absolutely fantastic show lined up for you tonight. We're going to dig into all of the things. Your your questions go to the front of the line. Eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six six two four. Email live at asknoahshow dot com. We'd love to take your feedback and dig into it. First, we'll get a look at news headlines with JT. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of July 23rd, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. LibreOffice 5.5.5 has been released. Qt Creator 11, the open source IDE, adds an integrated terminal and GitHub Copilot support. The open source SVG editor Inkscape has released version 1.3, Neptune 8.0 has been released and is based on Debian 12. Speaking of Debian, Debian 12.1 has been released, and the Debian team has announced that 64-bit RISC-V is now fully supported. CIQ has launched a new Rocky Linux support partner program. In hardware news, following the recent Intel Mesa driver improvements that yielded 10% better performance, Another change is on the way that has the ability to boost performance by up to 12% in other games. And the NVIDIA GeForce RTX 40 series cards are receiving initial open source support in Mesa. And in AI news, Meta has released Llama 2 as an open source model with a catch. The catch being, if you're a competitor of Facebook with 70 million monthly users, you're not allowed to use it. Wojciech Pavlik, he is the general manager for Business Critical Linux from SUS and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Welcome in, sir. Well, hello. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. So I wanted to start with this. Could you give us a brief rundown as to what the latest news with RHEL was and how SUS is choosing to respond to best serve the FOSS community? So uh, we have been observing that, um, well, Red Hat, our beloved competitor, um, and actually also in the community, a huge collaborator, was slowly deciding to close down on the availability of the source code for their flagship operating system, RHEL, right? So 
some time ago um switching or, or switching centos over to centos stream uh recently just uh, disabling access to the availability of the source uh, rpms for um the the rel operating system this of course uh is problematic uh because uh, rebuildability is one of the major sources uh why uh users um, be it paying customers or non-paying customers of an operating system, uh, can uh, build their trust into uh, the fact that what they are seeing uh, with um, the operating system binaries actually matches what is in the sources, right? The ability to review that. And um, obviously, this actually leads into another effect. Um, it's been many times uh, said that uh, many eyeballs may make all bugs shallow. Um, this is potentially a contested statement, but still, it is not within the capability of a single user, even a paying user, to actually go and review all of an operating system's code. So uh, the ability to collaborate on that and build a joint trust such that I, for example, as a user, uh, can review just a small thing that interests me, but trust that within the user community there would be somebody that would notice some discrepancy if there was one. Um, that is depending on the availability of those sources, and that is now gone. So Red Hat moved these sources behind a paywall. What has been SUSE's response, or what direction is SUSE choosing to go? Right. Uh, well, actually, I wouldn't say moved behind the red, uh, behind the paywall. They were always available behind the paywall as well, right? It was just discontinuing mm. the availability uh, in the public space. Uh, so, what's 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 uh, Sousa's reaction? Mainly, what uh, why Sousa is reacting? Uh, so, let me so let me let me answer that first, right? So, Sousa is quite proud of its own operating system, the SUSE Enterprise Server, and all the open SUSE variants, Leap and Tumbleweed. Uh, but we are aware that we are not the only ones in the universe, and many of our users, um, both individual and enterprise large customer users, are actually having mixed environments. And for uh, quite a number of those, they were feeling left out. They were feeling left out um, in the void uh, because uh, access to the source was really important for them, both in the case that they were not interested in support and were not paying, but also in case uh, they were actually actually paying because um, it is not necessarily them losing the access if they were paying. They would still be able to reach, uh, so, so, so to say, behind the paywall, but uh, losing... Uh, the other eyeballs of the whole community of users to actually make sure that uh, this software can really be trusted. So what SUSE has decided to do um, is to take the latest available rel sources and publish those, right? That's actually not something special. Anybody else could do that. But also, and this is where SUSE feels unique, in this space is continue maintaining those independent of Red Hat. So continuing adding fixes, adding patches as needed to keep the source code stable and keep it secure, fixing any vulnerabilities as they crop up. We can do that because we do this for uh, 
SUSE operating systems, OpenSUSE and SLES. Um, and it is basically a matter of transplanting those fixes over to a slightly alien code base, but not too much. RHEL is actually also an RPM-based distribution. Uh, many, many, many years ago, we had a almost shared origin. So um, that means that uh, this is some additional effort, but it's basically based on what we were doing already for ourselves. Uh, we believe that this is actually very much useful for the community uh, because um, the community of uh, free users, uh, of users of other um, REL-compatible distributions can use those sources to build that, as well as uh, supporting the other uh, distributions this way. So uh, I guess my question in response to all of this is that um, I, I start to wonder, like, what is the competitive edge that SUS has over RHEL? I mean, I, I personally enjoy the idea that uh, you're really trying to be open source, good open source citizens as you see it, you know, in, mm. in whatever your vision of that is. And, and I truly mean that. But when it comes down to, so I'm a, a smaller medium business, or maybe I'm even a large business that's looking to migrate off of my mainframe. Like I look at the two competitors and say, well, RHEL kind of has the lion's share. What is what is the competitive edge that Seuss has? So um, let me say just just by by start by saying that Seuss is is the smaller player, right? And so uh, we need to be smarter, quicker, and and generally uh, provide a better service to stay in business. And that's what we do, right? So uh, when you look at, for example, uh, the comparison of customer satisfaction, it generally is higher with SUSE services. When it comes to the operating system itself, I would not be able to argue that there is a huge um, functional difference. It's all open source. So whatever we create, actually all of the competition has available for their next release anyway. We are pretty strict on making sure that everything that we develop is really getting uh, into the upstream projects. Uh, there is one thing that actually is um, a significant differentiator in the open space, in the, in, in the, in the community space, and that is that uh, unlike competition that, um, well, Red Hat, that is trying to close down on the availability of um, the uh, RHEL code base, making it available only to uh, paying customers uh, and having a separate offering for the community users in Fedora and potentially in CentOS Stream, uh, as much as that can be considered a, a usable distribution. Um, SUSE is not only giving away the complete sources of Slash. Uh, to uh, its OpenSUSE community, but actually also the binaries. The very binaries that are comprising the commercial offering are one-to-one -one available within OpenSUSE Leap. So in that, um, if you are a uh, single individual user or uh, a small business user that is not yet decided that, that you actually need uh, the um, comfort of support and compliance uh, and certifications and all that that comes with a paid Linux, well, then you can just run OpenSUSE Leap and have all the quality that comes with it and all the maintenance that comes with it. So 
Now, this is this is something that really is is differentiating. There are some technological um, advances that are also in our product that are not available elsewhere, like for example, um, user space life patching, which um, we added to our uh, kernel life patching. So that says that you can run your system and update uh, some key components uh, without rebooting for up to a year. Um, wow. That is certainly <laughs> uh, very much appreciated by some uh, mission-critical customers or customers with mission-critical workloads. Uh, we are pushing forward quite a bit of effort on uh, confidential computing, which has a potential to really change the landscape about how people deploy workloads in the cloud. Um, but uh, in the end, uh, I do expect that uh, that much of that will eventually pop up everywhere else as well. So I just wanted to follow up um, to make sure that I understood what you were saying correctly. So I'm going to frame this with um, my knowledge from the Red Hat side. So Red Hat has uh, the open source infrastructure initiative, uh, which allows people to who are not who are part of the open source community to just go and have, you know, access to free rel as it is. And there's also the developer, um, the developer program, which allows you to run 16 odd machines that are entitled, uh, out there. I think what I heard you were saying that, that Seuss's kind of counter to that would be to say, go, go work with leap. Is that, is that correct? And if that is, can you just expand on it from that angle? Um, that would be pretty much right. Um, OpenSUSE Leap is an operating system that includes all of the slash binaries. So it is equivalent plus uh, all of the um, extra code that is useful for an individual user. So graphical interfaces, I don't know, graphical programs, games, whatever you like and expect from having an, in an enthusiast uh, desktop distribution. So that's an option. But uh, of course, we also work with customers to actually provide them uh, with uh, with subscriptions that are useful for developers. Uh, but they are not free. That's true. Some of the some of the other Red Hat clones or smaller distributions, they find themselves in a really precarious position because they were relying on Red Hat to be able to get their code. Seuss, in some ways, is in a unique position because you guys do have the resources to maintain a hard fork, and it certainly seems like that's the direction you're going. Now, it's been announced that Seuss is spending $10 million towards the development and maintenance of RHEL or a REL-compatible co co distro, can you help me understand how that $10 million will be spent over time? Well, it's it's, it's actually rather simple, um, and it, it may be somewhat um, anticlimactic to, to just say, okay, this, this requires um, a certain number of engineers to actually work on and maintain that code. Um, I can't tell you exactly how the rel what the, what the rel code size is because we did not run the statistics on that, but I assume it is actually very similar to a slash code base, and that is 1.2 to 1.5 billions lines of code. So it is not a small feat. It is not a, not a small effort. So pretty much the vast majority of that money will go into uh, well staffing up our team to actually. Uh, do that effort of, of keeping that code base in a top condition. Um, 
you were you were mentioning that there are some uh, other distributions that um that do not have that uh, that capacity and they are currently looking into ways uh, how to continue obtaining uh the source code from uh from red hat mm-hmm. um in various ways and and i'm quite sure that you you have seen the announcements from mm-hmm. alma that it has decided to uh, basically start using CentOS Stream and start diverging from uh, very close compatibility with RHEL uh, or Rocky that was figuring out ways how to use uh, the GPL and cloud instances to uh, get the code despite uh, opposition from Red Hat. Uh, I wish them luck, but also we are offering uh, and actually actively engaging with them to see whether uh, they would... Um, collaborate on uh, this uh, code base that we are putting out uh, such that it is not just a single company effort but more of a community effort in this in this space so we I just wanted to circle back to the operating system uh, conversation again so you kind of explained um, SLES and then OpenSUSE Leap uh, I'm not as super familiar with what's happening with Liberty and where does where does Liberty fit in, and and did it play a part in the the decision for the RHEL fork? Well, certainly, it did play a part, mainly in the fact that we are already familiar with this space. So, uh, SUSE Liberty is pretty much uh, like any of those other rebuilds, a RHEL rebuild, right? And uh, as such, it is affected by the same dynamic of uh, losing access to the sources. Um, so why Liberty was created, uh, it is actually a pretty straightforward situation. When we have a customer that has a mixed environment of RHEL and uh, SLES code base and desires to, well, have only a single provider of the services, uh, then we can offer Liberty to that customer to actually move over from a hat and without uh, any migration costs, switch uh, the provider of the updates uh, to SUSE as well as support. Um, typically, we are actually expecting such a customer to migrate completely over uh, to SLES eventually um, because we believe that we will convince them that uh, it's simply better. Uh, but if we if they don't, they can actually stay uh, on the Liberty offering for a very long time. In, in now, Europe, having this fork, right? Having this fork uh, actually enables us uh, to use that fork to build Liberty, a compatible offering uh, with Red Hat, uh, without um, having to. Th- think about and lose sleep over losing access uh, to the Red Hat sources for good because we can continue building that ourselves. So uh, listening to you talk about Liberty, I wondered whether it gives you a competitive advantage in Europe where uh, Red Hat is a North American-based company and SUSE is it's out of Germany, if I, if I remember correctly. So wondering if that gives you a little bit of a competitive advantage in terms of hey, we can provide you a, a RHEL-like system that's supported here and kind of homegrown inside of the European Union? Um, interesting interesting aspect. I don't think that is a huge, um, really huge, huge factor. 
we you are absolutely right that that we do have a much more home turf status in uh, in the European Union, where uh, we are better known and, and companies sometimes do prefer European suppliers. But in that case, they would also very often be choosing um, SLES or Switzerland's Enterprise Server uh, and not RHEL, right? So um, it is really mainly being utilized for customers that have a mixed landscape, have already deployed some uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux and are looking to get supported uh, from a single vendor. So earlier you talked a little bit about Liberty Linux being kind of the, the, the clone, and, and I think you said something to the effect of long-term your plan would be to get them on SLE. Yep. Why the decision to invest so much money and resources into a hard fork of RHEL? Why not put those same resources into SLE if the belief is that SLE is the better product of the two? Uh, again, um, the situation is that our many, many of our customers have a mixed landscape, right? So um, we want to serve the customer, not just our code base. On the other hand, um, 10 million compared to what we invest into SLE is negligible. <laughs> it's a small amount, right? Uh, the development of a Linux distribution is actually pretty expensive. I will not be sharing how much, uh, but it's many, many times that. So um, I was thinking about the shift in landscape that that we are currently watching from the lens from the lens of an ISV or an independent software vendor, and I was thinking about how lots of times um, we have friends of the show, really good friends of the show, that work for some of these places that they don't directly um, develop on RHEL, but they they rather slap a, a thing on there that says, you know, this works on RHEL based systems. How does the landscape for ISVs adjust to SUSE's commitment to a RHEL fork? Like, is there uh, extra work involved for the ISVs to make their software packages certified and compatible with both SUSE and RHEL? Um, so certifications are a somewhat strange beast. Um, in purely legal terms, they only apply to the operating system that has the right name that is on the certificate, right? But people have been um, using those, um, just assuming that if it's really the same source code, it will just work. And um, the ISVs were kind of nodding, this is okay. Um, this is really not going to change. Um, with uh, with uh, our RHEL fork uh, that we have announced, we are very much intending to stay very close uh, in terms of binary compatibility to actually make sure that every ISV application that is out there will continue running completely without any changes required uh, on this fork. That is oh, that is the value of forking it. Otherwise, we could just ask them to actually go to sleep. Um, which is also quite compatible, but does require some little changes from time to time. Um, so, of course, we will no longer be able to be back-to-back back back compatible, right? Um, actually, our intent is to fix bugs. And so we may end up fixing more bugs than what uh, Red Hat would. 
uh, which I suppose is fine with the ISVs and the customers, but it's no longer a buck-to-buck compatibility. So um, on this kind of vein, Red Hat says they don't see any value in the clones at this point in their history. So um, some have kind of theorized that this is due to the fact that they were essentially enabling their own competition. I've, I've heard that theory uh, being thrown around a ton. So I, I wonder, with a fork of RHEL, is there any concern that SUSE is going to create its own competition? Well, this is certainly something that we have considered, right? Um, it is, it is, that's actually a philosophical debate. Uh, there is a such thing as a adoption-led model where you say, okay, first we need to create awareness of our product. And we actually, Suze is actually doing that with our Rancher products where we make sure that everybody has access and everybody is using them. And then when people start actually desiring to use them, in a mission critical environment, they decide uh, that a subscription and a paid subscription is actually something that is useful. Um, for I understand that for Red Hat, who has a really dominant position on the market, the adoption model is is no longer really applicable because they are well recognized. And so, yes. Um, I do see the point where they say, okay, for us, this has no longer a value. It has a huge value for the whole industry uh, because it allows uh, running a lot of innovative and desirable services uh, and starting uh, new developments um, without having to invest up front uh, for a a paid Linux. So I don't think that for SUSE, this actually uh, means uh, building ourselves a competition particularly when we are intending to continue with developing innovative Linux products uh, like the next generation Linux we are planning uh, in uh, SUSE Alp, the adaptable Linux platform that is going to be the base for the next uh, Linux uh, distributions that we uh, bring to the market. So from that perspective, it is mainly about taking the existing people, making sure that they can continue where they are um, while bringing something new to the market. And um, for SUSE, one of the values in doing this is actually in the markets where we are not recognized, and yeah, US is that place, uh, to put a stake in the ground and say, we actually can do this. We actually have the muscle, have the knowledge, have the know-how uh, to maintain a full uh, clone this way or for a full, full fork, rather, because it will no longer be a clone. Um, and so we are trustworthy uh, as a uh, operating system provider, uh, even if you, well, even better if you uh, are using uh, our, our preferred operating system that is Slice. When I think about SUSE and I think about the competitive advantage that you guys offer, one of the things that comes to mind for me is the open build service. So I'm curious, does does the open build service, does it play a role in the process of forking? And if so, could you elaborate as to how? The open build service is actually a quite powerful platform uh, that not just us, but a number of other companies and open source projects are using to build their software. One of the big advantages of the build service is 
that as you make changes to the individual packages uh, that the whole solution is composed of, it automatically rebuilds everything that is in the dependency chain. So let's say you modify a glibcy, uh, then everything that is actually linking with glibcy gets rebuilt such that you are at every point in time sure that um, no old code uh, is remaining uh, in the whole build, which may be critical when you have, for example, inline functions that get replicated across packages and so on. So if you really want to fix a security bug, this functionality together with very tight uh, rebuildability guarantees so that when you build the same source code twice, you actually get the same result. Uh, this uh, really helps have a lot of trust into the resulting uh, resulting binaries. Um, we have already, um, about two years ago, uh, made a prototype build of uh, a rel code base uh, using build service, so we know we can do that. And eventually, the intention is to build uh, this fork also using the, uh, the open build service that was created by Susan. Yes. Wojciech Pavlik, the general manager for Business Critical Linux and a guest this hour on the Ask No Show. Sir, we appreciate the time that you've given us. We'll get you back on the program soon. Thank you. It was um, a great pleasure talking to you. Steve, you, uh, you wanted to get some feedback. Absolutely. All right. Let's dig in, see what we got. Our first email comes in from Tom. Tom writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve. Listener since episode number one, even though I no longer have a long commute, I still listen religiously. Thank you. I have a question and I want to put a remote backup at my parents' place. I'm wondering the best way to do this securely. I'm thinking of using Tailscale for point to point and then fail to ban, but I'd love to hear what you think. Still loving the show, Tom. So Steve, you woke up in Tom's shoes and... You want to back up your data. You want it offsite. Your parents or family members say, hey, you can store a box here. Is Tailscale what you would do? It probably is. It, it's, uh, I'm a little more comfortable with OpenVPN, to be honest with you. But that also requires that you have some sort of control on both sides. Uh, previously, I had used Tink. Uh, so I did that for quite a long time, which is a similar idea. Uh, nowadays, I might use Tailscale. Um, I've, I have been satisfied with that uh, i think that fail to ban is a little overkill unless you're actually exposing something to the internet because mm -hmm. if you're using tail scale then i don't know who's going to be attacking your it's box. behind a firewall yeah but aside from that i i see no problem with this the only thing i would think of is what types of backups are you doing do you have a backup strategy um do you have it sorted into critical and non-critical data? And are you also testing your backups? Because that's a critical part that gets missed. Um, I get lazy personally from time to time. I still have a, like, for example, I have Home Assistant. Uh, backups are my most critical, and I keep a VM around just to do that. It's been a couple months, probably about four since I've last done that. But I do a test restore from time to time, and I recommend you go in and make sure that the stuff you think you're backing up is actually there. Yeah, it's no good if you can't find it. I So here's something else to consider. We were setting up a backup for a law office and set the backup server up, put it in one of their locations. Backups are going great. Everything is tested. We tested the restore. It works well. Things are fine. Forget about it. Moved on. Like eight months later, nine months later, we get a call. Hey, our internet's down. Your 
internet's down. Yeah. So we start looking, sure enough, can't connect to the VPN, can't. All of a sudden, things kind of work for a second, then they kind of don't work for a second, then they kind of work, but they're really not working. We start looking at it, it's like, your bandwidth is pegged. What in the world is using all this bandwidth? So we start looking, it's the backup server. Why is the backup server using so much bandwidth? We look, oh, well, what they had done was they had taken on a case and had boatloads of body cam footage and had placed that on their server. Well, backup server did its thing and went, all right, time to start working. And it's, you know, two in the morning or three in the morning. So it starts chugging through, you know, a hundred and some gigabytes worth of data. Well, by the time they got into the office at eight in the morning, the next morning, guess what? It wasn't done yet. So it's still chugging on. And it's like, I got bandwidth. I'm going to use bandwidth. And so uh, that, and of, and of course, once we figured out what was going, it was just rate limited and it was fine. But just to be aware, when you're sending backups, particularly if you're doing large sets, Oftentimes, the best way to get that first one done is to sneaker net it over. That is to say, make a copy onto a hard drive, drive it over to your parents' place, and then just send deltas across the wire. The other thing I might consider if I were you, I don't know, you, you didn't specify what you're using to do backups. So you can use rsync, tried, true, has worked for decades, will continue to work, still a great way to go. Or the other thing you can do is use, if you're using ZFS, use ZFS Send. And the advantage of ZFS Send is you're able to encrypt your backup, you're able to send it over the wire, and the person receiving the backup doesn't even have to have the decryption key. So you can store an encrypted ZFS snapshot on a remote site without that site ever having the keys to actually retrieve the data. So the data is only good to you. Just two things I would add in there. The other thing is, so you said you were more comfortable with OpenVPN. I would agree with that entirely. Um, in the event that you don't have control over the network, what we've done is we've just installed the OpenVPN client on the remote box and then just have that dial back into our home. Um, and that kind of bypasses it because then, then one of the great things about OpenVPN is you can tunnel it over just about anything. So it doesn't doesn't require a specific port. Doesn't You can send it over just about anything. You can make it look like web traffic if you want. But, yeah, thanks for being a listener since episode one, Tom. Let us know uh, how that works out. Our second email comes in from Scout. Scout says, hey, guys, thanks for the great content. I'm relatively new to Linux as well as being partially blind. Orca 42 is not bad in Pop! OS running on an old HP 110 desktop with 16 gigabytes of RAM. Do you think it would be better on another distro such as Fedora or another? Do you think that we in the blind community should be relegated to special distros for us and enjoy desktop environments with the rest of you? Question mark. On windowing, if I open a new window, say from Firefox, it merely shrinks the first window and adds a new window right beside it. When what I want is the new window to be full screen automatically. Thanks for your time, Scout. So, Steve, do you have much experience with accessibility on Linux? I looked into this as best that I could and in my limited ability to understand, right? Um, I can't begin to appreciate what what battles people who are challenged with sight have i yeah. just i can't even imagine uh i wasn't able to turn up anything promising ultimately what it boils down to is if the application makers do not put in the hooks for screen readers or other type software uh, there isn't much that can be done from the distribution level to to help that there's a little bit here and there but not mm -hmm. not a ton so Ultimately, so the question was that would I have a better time on another distro? Maybe if you change the applications that you were using. It's doubtful though. Like Orca, the only difference would be that maybe on something like Fedora, Orca would be more up to date, but I'm not sure how fast moving that product project is anyways. So I'm not sure how much that would make a difference. Um, as for 
the question about relegated to special distros, I, I think that's almost clickbaity in an email um, because I don't know that very many people would agree to that statement. That said, the the issue that we have is that we have, so first of all, on Linux, we're already a small community, like you could say a niche community. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you're talking about a niche of a niche community and Linux is largely based upon people scratching their own itches. And I suppose that's the challenge when you already have a small community and then a tinier subsection of it is uh, not well served. How do you get over that hump? So there is a gentleman in the community by the name of Justin. I don't recall his last name, but so far as I know, he's still a listener of the show. So perhaps he can write in and and give us some, uh, some insight. But he is... He went to school uh, for for development, but he also uh, has some impairments, and as part of that, is very very passionate about uh, accessibility under Linux. So there's a couple of projects that come to mind. So there's a couple of distros that come to mind. Vinux, V-I-N-U-X. Um, so this is it's a Linux distro specifically with accessibility and and software selection in mind. Of course, you can install these tools on anything. So the answer to your question, are you relegated to a specific D or specific distros? No, because you can take these tools, even the ones that are made for specific distros, and install it on anything you like. That's that's where the advantage of open source comes in. But if you want everything kind of curated for you so that it's all set up and all installed and ready to go, there are certainly distros to do that. So Vinix is one of them. Sonar is another one. It's it's another they call it a disability specific linux distro i know that isn't the the um, the correct term but uh you might take a look at those two and again of course you could take fedora the ubuntu or whatever and and customize it to your needs to to your second question when you're talking about windowing one of the things that comes to mind to me is kde window rules so if you're using kde you can you can open up the an app built into kde called window rules and tell it hey when i launch firefox i always want it to be a full screen window in fact you can say i want it to be a window of this specific pixel by this specific pixel and i want it at this specific place on the desktop so you can get you can drill in and get it very very specific but yeah open up kde window rules and say hey when Firefox launches, always make it a full screen window. I would think that would that's a that's that's fairly low hanging fruit to solve. So, so that one should be pretty easy. But I'll hope to hear from Justin. I think he might have some really great advice for you, or at least some direction. And I know that he's very passionately working within the community to get uh, as you know some of these tools come out, and it's a great effort. But they kind of fall short of what the people that actually have to use them are doing. And as part of that, he gives a lot of feedback and says, "Hey." Let's let's fix this or let's make it better. So hopefully he'll write in. And of course, if you have if you struggle with a disability or if you've had some success with uh, using accessible Linux, we'd love to hear from you live at AskNoahShow.com. Third. Oh, and Steve says uh, Sonar is actually discontinued. So I guess that's maybe outdated information on my part, huh? Uh, That was probably one of our producers putting that in. Ah, okay. Um. Our third email comes in from uh, Joe's, Jose. Jose writes in and says, hey, Noah and Steve, I wanted to send this question to you folks. I've had some trouble getting a clear answer as to what I should be doing here. I realize that this may be a lot to read live while doing the show and providing enough context so the issue is pared down as much as I can. I have Fedora 38 as a server. I'm using an NFS client to connect to Fedora 37 NFS 
server sharing one share in my home recently, I noticed that my NFS, NFS client fails to mount one NFS on boot. Typically, the error looks something like this, and then he pastes the error. This reads to me something like my NFS client is unable to reach the NFS server at the time that the unit runs. It would seem like my network does not have an IP address route or something to that end at this point in the startup and where the unit file runs. I'd originally had a configuration in Etsy FSTAB for the mount with no problems mounting it, so I'm able to access the machine via SSH. Tried adding options like NetDev as well, but that didn't seem to change anything. I've noticed that the FSTAB entries generate systemd mount files and i ended up removing the fstab entry in favor of systemd mount file that i created to remove the variable and the generator and again nothing changed i've added the explicit entries into the systemd mount and i generate and wait for the targets such as networkonline.target to come up but i still have the same error message the fedora matrix channel also suggested I tried depending on the remote FS target as well, but that didn't change anything. At this point, I'm at a bit of a loss as to where to debug this. The NFS share mounts without issue, without fail, whenever I log into the machine and just mount it using mount tack A, or by restarting the systemd mount file in cases. I've worked around this by just creating a script that runs a systemd service that pulls the NFS server until port 2049 is accessible, netcat doing the heavy lifting and making my NFS systemd mount depend on it. That works perfectly. But I'd like to know what I'm fundamentally missing and take the recommended path. As an example, or an example of a system D mount similar to what I've been trying is below. If that helps as a point of reference. Cheers, Jose. So, Steve, it's interesting because Jose is doing this the way that you would suggest with uh, system D mount files. Have you ever run into issues with mounts not coming up because network isn't available? So I don't use mount files. I'm using systemd inside of the FS tab. So there's, oh. there's an option called x-systemd.automount. And uh, essentially, it's just replacing autofs. And the reason why this might, and I stress might, get around some of these air issues is because uh, the FS tab doesn't attempt to make the mount point until somebody accesses the directory that... Um, is in the FS tab. So if it's if you're doing this type of mounting, for example, my home download folder, or the other thing that I do is the, the Pac-Man cache, those are not required during boot. And so nothing happens until someone is actually at the system trying to do something. And I've never had a problem where, um, like this user, we have an issue where the network doesn't seem to be coming up in time for the NFS mount. So there's a couple of things I, I would try that. That would be the first thing I would do is, is attempt to use the auto mount feature of the X system D and see if that doesn't help you because it, like I said, it's not going to try and mount those devices until someone at the computer is actually trying to access that directory. One eight fifty five four fifty no eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow.com. That's how you get your questions in. The Walking Penguin asks via the Geek Lab. You can learn more at geeklab.ninja. Hey, Noah and Steve, I have a question about website builders and themes. I'm needing to rebuild or redo three websites, and I don't want to mess up what I have if I can help it. Would a website builder like Beaver alongside of a theme like Astra or Genesis Pro be the right direction? So I, I guess the, I'll be honest with you. So neither one of us are web designers. So, and we don't play one on TV. So we'll start there. So you're at, this is a little bit outside of our wheelhouse. However, if you were going to spin up a website, would you be more inclined to use a static site generator or would you do what, uh, 
the walking penguin is doing and would you design it essentially statically from scratch with a with a designer i would not use a designer because that's not the way my brain is wired i i probably would get down into the javascript and figure out how to make it do what i wanted it to do in that fashion because that's just the way my brain works so i'm i'm kind of the same thing i you know i i'm i i've I've I, I know what Beaver is. I've seen and I know that they can do wonderful, beautiful things to publish to WordPress and all the rest of it. And so I'm not knocking that. However, I, and this is it, it's it's a bit of a uh, it's a bit of a conundrum for me because in part he says he doesn't want to have to mess up what he already has. So I, I hate to ever tell anybody new can pave. Right. So if you want to go that route, WordPress is an open source project been around for a long time lots of people are using it the big thing to remember with wordpress is you want to stay on top of updates because there are people all over the internet that just sit there and scour for a wordpress instance to get out of date and then they just hammer it so i would encourage you to be as as religious as you can on staying on top of updates making sure you have backups all the rest of that if you're open to another solution I I cannot tell you how pleasant Hugo is to work with. You can learn more at gohugo.io. But we have started doing, we 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 we'd have people, and they would come to AltaSpeed and they would say, "Do you do web design?" We would say, "No, we don't really do web design." Then we go, "Okay, great. If I have a website designed, could you host it?" Yes, absolutely. And so they would give us essentially HTML, and we'd throw it up on a on a web server and go, "Here you go." But eventually it got to a point where they would start calling us for little changes. Hey, can we change the text here? Hey, can we change the text? And eventually we got to the point where we said, here are some Hugo templates. What do you think of these? And people went, oh, that's beautiful. Really? Here's the text I want. Here's some of the images I want. And like Steve said, the way that the developers and 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 geeks basically take things like static site generators. And what it is, is it allows you to just write a markdown file like we would with documentation, like we would with a show doc, like we would if we were designing a page. You just write it all out in markdown and then click on a button. And depending on what theme you apply, you can display that content however you like. So it, it provides for maximum flexibility. And oh, by the way, because it's statically generated, there isn't a whole lot of security to exploit. Hugo's really only running when it's generating out uh, the static HTML. And then from there, you have a, a web server serving it out. So highly recommend you consider that if you're open to it. Again, if you say, I'm just too far down this path, I've already got a good thing going, by all means, carry on with WordPress. Just make sure you keep it up to date. And in, 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 in that case, I think Beaver's fine fine to go. Um, don't have any specific experience with the, 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 um, the themes that you're talking about, but that yeah, I, I think you'd be fine to uh, to carry on there. Also from The Walking Penguin says, no, and Steve, I have a question over podcasting. I know you guys are doing radio, but who should I use between Buzzsprout and Blueberry? Or should I go speaker? I got into a beef with iHeartRadio. My local rock station got to flip to sports talk. I'm not happy with it all. Anyway, this podcast will be helping a nonprofit hospital with most of the money going to the hospital that this generates. So I, t I took a look at Blueberry and Buzzsprout. Can I give you an option three? So between those two, if I was going to choose, I would say I would start with Buzzsprout and I would go to Blueberry. And that's primarily based off of, as I dug into it, it seems like Blueberry's selling feature is they have lots of, uh, lots of room to grow. You can get bigger plans and have more features and all the rest of that. But it sounds like if you're looking to just get something off the ground, Buzzsprout is a more straightforward way to go. Here's 
what I don't like about either of them and what I do like about Fireside. First of all, Dan Benjamin has been podcasting for a long time and it shows when you go to the the things that you're going to want and the things that you care about in podcasting are all there and you don't even know all the things that you're going to want until you get halfway down the road and then somebody says was your podcast on this thing and you're like i've never heard of that platform and then you log into fireside and it goes publishing options publish to this place and you tick the box and boom now your podcast is there that's fantastic the other thing is when they they have things like when you pay for Fireside and you sign up for the initial account, you pay the, I don't know what it is, like 20 bucks a month, something like that, there's no limit to how many episodes you can have, how many episodes you can publish, how, like, you, it's essentially almost unlimited storage. Now, that's not entirely true because they do limit each episode to 100 megs, which kind of dictates, to me anyway, that dictates the kind of quality, audio quality that you're going to do. But if you're exporting at 96 kilobits per second, which is what they recommend, I found that you can, I mean, you can, you can, you can cram a two, sometimes two and a half hour podcast into a uh, into a single episode feed and every podcast consultant will tell you the maximum time you're really aiming for is that 40 to 50 minutes after that attention spans kind of kind of drop off so you might be better cutting two episodes anyway uh they have all of the features as far as metrics and embedding into websites and sharing with people and time stamping and all the rest of that so all of those features really go uh, go a long way if i were starting a podcast today if I wasn't if I wasn't connected to KEQQ and we weren't we didn't already have the system set up and seated and all the rest of it, and if this was more of a full time thing and wasn't kind of a hobby hanging off of my IT business, if all of that were different, I might really give a hard look at the podcasting 2.0 stuff. At the end of the day, at some point, you're going to want to bring in money. You're talking about bringing in money directly to the hospital, and that's great because you're you're going to benefit the hospital. But at the end of the day. Anything you do, any platform you do, isn't necessarily going to be tied to payments. That's all an afterthought. And with the podcasting 2.0 stuff, it's all one deal. They they have thought about all the things that, that made podcasts not ideal, where it was literally we were taking content and just putting it in a place that everybody could find on the Internet. And that's kind of how podcasts started. It's now evolved to, okay, we have these endpoint devices. We know what people's expectations are by way of... I want to support this portion of the show. I want to draw attention to this portion of the show. I want to fund the show. All of the all of the things that make podcasting useful and brings it into the 21st century are available with the 2.0 tools, and a lot of them just aren't available. Um, and they're not going to be available with Fireside, but they're definitely not going to be available uh, with these other platforms like Blueberry or Buzzsprout either. So I would seriously give that a, a, a good run. But if you don't come across those things, I would honestly, I would start with Fireside and see what you like about Buzzsprout or Blueberry that Fireside doesn't have, and then try and knock Fireside down. I'd be surprised if you find something. Third question, Noah and Steve, could you please explain to me the difference between Logos and Crosswire Bible software? I keep flipping on which one to use. Have you used either of these pieces of software, Steve? Honestly, I don't do my studying in front of the computer. I, I listen to a podcast, and that's as close to the electronics as I get when it comes to Bible study. Okay. So I, I, I've, I use Crosswire. I use, um, I use Crosswire, and uh, essentially uh, it's – so how to explain this in one minute or less. 
So Logos is the go-to, been around for years, Bible software, and it has every translation under the sun and a bunch of, uh, and a bunch of other books and research that you can have access to. It's very expensive. I, I want to say the full version of Logos is like thousands of dollars. I've used it. It's okay. Now it's web-based, so I like it even less because that, to me that means it's cloud-based. Crosswire is interesting because it's an in, it's a Bible engine, and really it's a it's a manuscript engine, and then you can add texts, most of which are biblical translations. But the nice thing about it is there's a front end called Zyphos, and the nice thing about Zyphos is it'll allow you to pull up all of these different translations, have them side by side. So if you're reading in normal American English, and then you go, I really want to see what that looks like in the Texas Receptus, you can go pull the Texas Receptus up and get a side by side comparison and look and go, oh. That was the original Greek word that was used, or that was the original Hebrew word that was being used. And so I understand what there's a difference between the agape love and this. So those sorts of things you're able to do with Zyphos, and I really appreciate it. The other thing that I've really gotten into with Zyphos is the ability to bookmark. So when I come through passages or something like that, and I'm like, oh, that I'm, I need to remember that next time. And I can have things for categories, or if I have discussions with people, I'll kind of outline all of my notes and then bookmark them so I can instantly, we get into something and I have all of the passages that reference a particular topic all lined up and just ready to go available to me at my fingertips through my laptop. So that's a very long-winded way of saying I would definitely go with Crosswire slash Zyphos. I would use Zyphos to, to access the Crosswire underpinnings. And if you install Zyphos, you'll get Crosswire. Music in our ears means we're out of time. I appreciate you joining us. We record this show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us live, ask your questions by calling in, joining the Mumble Room. Or the Geek Lab at geeklab.ninja. That conversation continues 24-7-365. It's a party. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.